Uh, we are uh, hopping back into Romans. We did that last week. Um, we started and uh, picked it back up in, in Romans chapter 13. And we uh, looked in verse 1 where we saw the, the overarching principle that Paul gave to us in that first verse of the passage we looked at last week, <clears throat> Excuse me, which is, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, the word hupotasso, to, to, uh, it's, a, it's a military word that, that means to arrange in, a, in an orderly fashion under the leadership of a commander. So it came to mean to be voluntarily submissive voluntarily in a place of being subject to one. Paul doesn't use the stronger New Testament word necessarily for obey, but it is a, it is a powerful word, and it is one that, that strikes to the heart of our relationship with the government, with the state. And so all of those governing authorities, literally that meant uh, best translated the powers that be. Paul is not necessarily referring to individuals, to persons, but to the powers that be and the roles in which they serve. And we acknowledge that that as Paul wrote those words, remember that in, uh, for the Christians who were living at the time that Paul was writing them, there were no friends in the governing authorities, right? They didn't have anyone. They're, they, in fact, they were headed into a time period under, the emperor, under emperor Nero, that, depending on the timing of the writing of Romans, they were either in it or about to get in it, and it was going to get really messy, really divisive, really difficult, because their lives would be on the line. He says, though, that we should submit to them, since there is no authority except from God, and, the, and that the authorities that exist are instituted by God. And so we saw that all legitimate authority is sourced in the person of God. So we understand that, that, again, acknowledging, we talked about this whole issue that sometimes for the, for the person that lives in this place, for us as Americans, it's either one that we're extremely thrilled about or we're highly upset with, right? And it changes periodically, and it could change soon or it may not change, right? We have this whole election process that we go through. So whether it's that or whether it's people who serve in the, in the highest court in the land or just the person that walks up to your car and says, did you not see that that light was red? In all of those, for all of those people, right, we live in this place where we are, we are submissive. And when we do find it necessary, re remember that there are times, and we even used the example of Peter and John as they stood before governing authorities in their day, namely the Sanhedrin, and they were told, they were forbade to, to speak in the name of, of Jesus anymore, to teach and, and elevate his name as, as in the ma manner that they were doing. They, they said, oh, we, we have to obey God rather than humans, right? And we acknowledge that there are times for us that we do that, but remembering that our attitude is so important as we do offer at times honest, forthright, um, you know, uh, disagreement with those governing authorities that are over us because that overarching principle of living in submission to them because they are sourced in the person of God is where we were at last week. That last week, I have to admit, and I wouldn't say it, it was complicated, but we're going to make it super simple this week. Now, I was, a, I was a math major. Before I got saved, I was headed into math education. I was going to, my, my, my plan was to be a teacher and a coach. So that's what I was headed toward um, before I got saved. And then I, I ended up finishing my degree. Some of you may know this. My, my bachelor's degree is actually in mathematics. And I remember when I would share that, some people, you know, some uh, well-meaning parents would, whose eyes would light up and said, would you be interested in tutoring my, my kid? 
because they really struggle with math. And I mean, I, I, I did high-level calculus and all that stuff. And right now, this is about as much as I can do because I have forgotten all that stuff from back uh, in the, I graduated from college in 90, so, you know, it's been a long time since I was uh, living in that world. And so today, we want to make it really simple. You know, some things in Scripture are a little bit difficult to understand, right? Like, we could get into this lengthy discussion about the, 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 the interaction between the free will of humanity and the sovereignty of God. That's a little bit more complex, right? It's a little bit more nuanced. It's a little bit more sometimes difficult to reconcile. Sometimes we have to live with certain things that it seemingly, even biblical writers hold in tension, right? Like those two that I mentioned. That's the, the classic example that we oftentimes like to use. But today... It is going to be pretty simple. Now, by saying it's simple, I don't mean it's easy. It's just simple. It's straightforward. It's direct. It's concise. You will not leave here thinking, man, that was kind of hard to understand. It's simple. Now, whether or not we choose to embrace it at the level that Paul is encouraging us to do, then that's where it becomes, you know, kind of where that proverbial rubber meets the road. It's, not, it's going to make sense here. But what's it going to do in your heart? How is this simple message that Paul wants to share with us going to change us today? So that we don't just understand it, but that it moves us to live differently. Earlier in his letter, Paul has referred several times to the importance of paying our debts. He says we, in a sense, are in debt to the unbelieving world to share the gospel with them, according to chapter 1, verse 14. He says we are in debt to the Holy Spirit to live a holy life, according to chapter 8 and verse 12 and the verses that come after that. And of course, we saw last week that we are in debt to the state to pay our taxes, right? It is, in fact, this reference of the, uh, us being in, uh, indebted to the state to pay our taxes and tolls. We talked about that last week. To also, we are in debt to them to give them, them our respect and to honor them. We talked about not only do we do the tangible things, but the intangible things. That's how we wrap that up. And so the transition then between, verse, between this idea of what we owe the state and then how we relate to one another is found, if you will, in verse 8. And so look, at, and, and we're going to read those, whole, uh, those three verses. I've got them listed in a couple of translations, but I'm going to refer primarily uh, to the Christian Standard Bible that's listed there at the top of your notes. So follow along with me as Paul offers this transition statement between what he was just discussing and now what he wants to discuss when he says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments... Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the way in which we believe that you inspired Paul many years ago to write these words to those ancient believers. And Lord, though we're separated by, uh, in many, many ways from them, separated by culture, separated by region, separa separated by time, separated by way of life, and so many other ways, there's 
still something we believe that rings absolutely as true today as it did when Paul's pen or the pen of his secretary first met that page. And so God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to not just understand, but to see it become part of who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I don't consider myself to be the smartest guy in the world. There are people sitting in this room that are much smarter than me. And so there are times in life, and I don't know if you ever feel this way, there are times in life when I look for things that are just, again, simple, easy to understand, that I can get my mind around. You ever, you ever, are you ever glad when you can kind of get your mind around something? You ever get frustrated when it's difficult to get your mind around? I'm not, I'm not uh, you, know, you know, saying that we have to get, always keep things simple, but there is a little bit of exhale that happens when you're able to kind of get, get grasp something. Like, as a 26-year-old father of three kids, three and under, I felt like I was, had nothing to offer. I felt like I knew practically nothing about what it meant to raise these three precious little devils of human beings. And so sometimes as it relates to a faith journey, and again, I don't think it always happens this way, but there are certain things where I think like if, if we could just make it about, and, and may, maybe again, it's a little bit the way I would look at life, a little bit my personality, my makeup. If we could just find something that, like, that was a centralized way of understanding this thing known as a walk with Jesus. <laughs> this followership of him, this way of the master. And I think if there's lots of, and there's lots of words that maybe that we could choose that would you know, kind of condense it down into, into one word. But I think it would be, we'd be hard-pressed to find a better word than the word love. That's what really makes this so simple today. Is we're going to see how really it all boils down. It all becomes all about this thing known as love. The word that we translate in our English Bible's love is the Greek word agapao here. It means to welcome or entertain someone. Uh, it means to be fond of someone, to love someone dearly. The way in which God loves us, his love for us is always represented by either the word agapao or the word agape. want some form of that. So we oftentimes in English we say agape. We, you know, we use that, you know, that. That's kind of our way of pronouncing it. So this word is the way in which God refers to us. Now, it's not always used to refer to the way we love each other. Sometimes that word is eros, which is a more romantic love, a, a, a more um, intimate love, of like opposite sex love. There's also phileo, which is like that brotherly love. And there's, there's multiple ways in which love is represented for the, uh, in, in, in terms of the verbiage, the way we love each other. But this one is targeted toward the way we love each other. And it's always used when it's describing how God loves us. It's this never-ending, always pursuing, more than an emotion, incredibly committed to, absolutely prioritizing the other person kind of love. And that's what this love, this what these, these three verses are all about. 
As Paul has transitioned, as he's talked about something, again, a very practical thing, the way that you live under the authority of those, of those powers that be that have been established in your particular culture. Again, whether you find them incredibly uh, you know, uh, amenable to and favorable to those of uh, us who are followers of Jesus or not, we still live in that, in that reality of living in submission to them. But then he transitions and, and says, now, the, 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 the thing that, that you, the way in which you want to lo- uh, relate to each other, and it's, it's the way in which, again, he's represented, again, the way we, the debt we owe to the, to the world, we pay that debt by sharing the gospel to them. The debt we owe the Holy Spirit, we pay that debt by living that holy life. That debt we owe to the government, we pay that debt by paying those taxes and tolls and other requirements of being that part of that particular geopolitical uh, um, entity, that, that, that particular society. But the only thing that is outstanding between you and I and the only debt that we will never be able to pay fully is the one of love. It's the one thing that we will always owe one another. There's not a relationship. There's not a situation. There's not a circumstance. There's nothing that would ever contradict this reality. It's the one thing that is outstanding to the people in which we have a relationship. Now, certainly the, the first context for this, as you can see, is that Paul says, Let no, uh, don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. And I think the first context of this, he's speaking to the way in which believers relate to one another. That's certainly true, and I think he's going to expand on that as we get down later in, in, into the text. But certainly this idea of love being the one thing that we owe one another is this, is this abiding presence of how it should always be in the forefront of our mind. It is is best to understand Paul here to to mean that we must love our neighbors, even as Scripture commands, even though we will always fall short of the love required of us. You see, I can never love you and you could never love me the way God loves us. That's why there's always a little bit of a gap there. There's always a little bit of an outstanding debt that I have to you and that we, you, you have to me. It's a mutual debt that we always owe one another because we can never uh, love each other the way God loves us. So because of that, we are always actively engaged in loving one another. It is the one thing that we owe one another. Now, I know there are other things that we set up that we say that we owe one another. Like, for instance, if I, if I borrow something from you, the understanding is... I would owe you the proper return of that item, whatever it might be, right? A snowblower, a car, whatever it might be. There's all, there's all sorts of things I understand that, 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 that go beyond that, but scripturally what we're saying and the way in which we relate to one another is the only thing that we ever owe one another, but it's the one thing that we always owe one another. That's why it becomes very simple. It's this, when I look and I, I see a brother or a sister, when I understand, I, I could be very close with them. I might be somewhat distant from them. I might find them wonderful to be around. I might find them difficult to be around. When uh, I was at Element Church, that's the church I was at prior to coming here, uh, we had, it was a single-site church when I went there back in 01. And over the course of time, we acquired uh, a church in our denomination 
that was about 12 miles away, and so we became what was known as a multi-site church, a multi-campus church, just two campuses. But um, it was in Blissfield and Adrian, if you know anything about Michigan, it's almost down to Toledo. And so we went through some coaching on how to go multi-site because there's lots of challenges there. And, and one of the things that our coaching church would talk about in terms of any kind of staffing that maybe you would have to do in growing your staff as you, as you took this different direction in multi-site is one of the things that they like to refer to as in terms of uh, the way in which they understood chemistry in a staff is the parking lot test. And it was this. When you see somebody's car on the parking lot and you realize that they're in the office and you're going to be in the office with them, what does that do to you emotionally? <laughs> Is it like, yeah, Sally's here. Yeah, Mike's here. Yeah, Tom's here. Or, or, oh, gosh, Mark is here. And that's, that's the honest way of understanding relationships, right? You know that. You know, you, you walk around the corner at work, it's Monday morning, you're not super excited about being there or whatever, you realize your to-do, to-do list is, is pretty long, and you're headed down to your cubicle or your office or whatever your workspace might be, and you hear this voice saying, hey, good morning, and you're like, it's either like, oh, or it's like, yeah, you turn around, you want to see them, you want to go talk with them. I'm not naive enough to think that that doesn't exist right here in the body of Christ, even within our own church family. Right? There are people that you see and you're like, oh, I wonder if I can not make any eye contact with them. And there are people that you really want to be with. That's why it's this, this radical nature, this radical notion of it's the one thing that we love one another. Think about it, guys. Think, think about this, this one sentence, how much it would change human experience. If we really let just this one sentence... I'm not saying there's a lot, there's a tons more in the, in, the, in the 66 books, I get that. There's tons more from the writings of Paul and from the life of Jesus. But what if just this one sentence, do not owe anyone any, anything except to love one another. What if we just did that? What if that just characterized us? It's the one thing that we owe one another. We're never going to pay it, but we're always paying on it. That can seem kind of burdensome or it can also seem somewhat freeing because it's the one thing I do with my life. The one thing I do with my life is to cultivate a life of love for others because it's the one thing we owe each other. Secondly, we see that the love, love in fact, summarizes and completes or fulfills the law. It summarizes and, compl- and completes or fulfills the law. Verse 18, the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now, we need to have context here from, from what, uh, what Paul is saying. We need to remember uh, what Paul has say, said about uh, fulfilling the law against the background of chapter 7, in which he argued that we are incapable of fulfilling the law by ourselves, right? On account of our fallen, self-centered, sinful nature. He went on to write, however, that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. If you go back to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, you see that Paul says this, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us or fulfilled 
same word used here in Romans 13.8, might be fully met in us who do, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So now Paul returns to this idea of fulfilling the law, having said that we in our own cannot fulfill the law. So who fulfilled the law? Jesus fulfilled the law. We're going, to, we're going to see that. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And in fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, when we receive him and by, the, by, by receiving him, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we then have the righteousness that comes from outside of us into us so that then we are those who are able to fulfill the law by the way in which we live. Why? Because love summarizes and fulfills it. God fulfilled it in the person of Jesus, and when we love one another, the one who loves another, we are actually fulfilling that which the law is all about. It fulfills it, it also summarizes it. Paul says the commandments. Now, he lists four of the, the five. <laughs> one commentator said it doesn't make any sense. Now, you may have an English translation. You might be looking at one. I think the authorized version actually uh, does include uh, the commandment about uh, bearing false witness, but very few manuscripts have that one. It don't, the most manuscripts only have four of the, of the five kind of human-to-human commandments. So most commentators uh, think that Paul just forgot about <laughs> bearing false witness. And it was added in, and for some people it was added in, probably a scribe decided that uh, he knew better than Paul, and so he decided to add that fifth one because, well, Paul would have wanted this in here. He just forgot but the, the, the most reliable manuscripts only have the four, but you can see what the four are. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. I, I love the way that uh, uh, Peterson says in the message, if you look down to that second paraphrase, the second translation, which is actually a paraphrase, he says, uh, he says, the law code, don't sleep with another person's spouse, don't take someone's life, don't take what isn't yours, don't always be wanting what you don't have, that's coveting, and any other don't you can think of. <laughs> It finally adds up to this. Love other people as well as you do yourself. The commandments are summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. See the simplicity? It's the one thing we owe each other. The simplicity, it fulfills the law, it summarizes the law. All that stuff. How, how could I actively engage in adultery, murder, theft, covetousness, and let's even throw in bearing false witness, even though it's not right there. How can I do any of that with an attitude of love? There's no, love would preclude me, prohibit me, stop me from doing any of those things. It is the positive expression of those negative don'ts. Anything injurious, anything harmful, there's no way in which I could do that. Why? Does it summarize and fulfill the law? It, it, it does it in this way, and this is a, this is a word that actually is used uh, only twice in the entire New Testament. It's the, it means to condense something into a summary. The second place that it's used besides this location here in Romans chapter 13 is found in Ephesians 1. And in, that, and, uh, in those two verses from Ephesians 1, Paul says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will, same, this phrase here means the same thing as, as uh, what we have as summarizing the law in our, in our text. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. 
everything in heaven and on earth. Everything in the law, all that the law would require, everything that the law would be about, all of that is brought together in this one thing, simply love. Why is that? Because love always seeks the best for others. It does no wrong. That word wrong is, is the Greek word kakos, which is, means evil. Love does no evil to a neighbor. Love is actively engaged in seeking the best for others. It wants the best for them. Love, it, it, if, if, look at it this way. This way that, that passage that I read from, from Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, the means of the fulfillment of the law, of the law was the gift of Jesus. The nature of its fulfillment is found in love. And so when we see how, how the, the, the commandments are summed up by this one thing, the essence of love is to seek and to serve our neighbor's highest good. That sounds a little bit like the work of Jesus, right? What did he say he came to do? To seek and to save that which was lost. And so for us, we are seeking and serving the highest good for our neighbor in the same way that Jesus did that for us. Because that's the last point, is that when we think about love, when we see how it, it, it always seeks the best for others, when it's some, knowing that it summarizes and, and, uh, and it fulfills the law, knowing it's the, it's the one thing that we owe each other, couldn't we say that love is personified in the person of Jesus? If we want to know what love looks like, we look at him. Because we say, well, love is... He is the fulfillment of the law, right? Since love is the fulfillment of the law, what did Jesus say about himself? He said, in fact, as he taught his followers, I didn't come to abolish the law. What did he say he came to do? Fulfill it. So if Jesus came to fulfill the law and love is the fulfillment of the law, then Jesus is the fulfillment of love. He is love. By the law of substitution, he is love. We know that also scripturally, right? Because what does scripture say about God? God not can love, not does love, not will love, but God is love. And so because love is the fulfillment of the law and because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, Jesus equals love. God is love. Again, I don't want to boil it down to a cliche, you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago or so, you know, we were all wearing those bracelets. And maybe you still wear one with the WWJD on it. I, I'm, I'm not arguing for us to make it all cliche like that. But I am saying, suggesting to you this. If I want to know what my life should look like, Scripture seems to indicate that my life should be characterized by love. Because that doesn't come naturally to me. In fact... The one thing, the one person that I know how to love well is who? Me. I don't care about you. I care about me. That's my default setting. Unless God goes in and does some kind of master reset of me, which, by the way, is what we call salvation, and turns me into a new creation, the person that I will care about primarily and almost all the time is me. So I've got to learn a new way. And it's helpful when you're learning a new way if somebody is really good at the way in which you're headed. And guess what? 
That's exactly what Jesus is. Incredibly good at showing us what love looks like. So Jesus shows us how to deal with enemies. He shows us how to deal with the self-righteous. He shows us how to deal with people who are broken and hurting. Jesus is the absolute number one expert on love. And so when we think about what love is, we consider who who he is. And we remember that not only did he spend time telling his believers, his followers, about what love looked like, but he also demonstrated that love, right? He demonstrated that love in the ultimate sacrifice that he made when he was, because he, he said that he was about seeking and saving that which was lost. So this morning, we're going to have a wonderful reminder of that very thing. We're going to have a reminder of the gift of Jesus in the flesh and his shed blood, which gives us life, which gives us that master reset on us if we receive it by faith. And so as we prepare to receive communion today, and servers just give me just a second before you get up. As we prepare to receive communion today, I hope that our focus and our, our attention and kind of our, our meditative uh, centering point today could be about this thing, love, and this person, Jesus. How it all comes together in him, it all then exudes out from him, and it becomes that thing, which in a very simple way becomes about all that we are. We are the people of love because he was a person of love.